the wave load, if you wish to use that term, is part of it. So we'll always do a two on, one off, change the load to then, then, then off. What I found is the reason I did that is because I found by, by um, if you do three on, one off, that your power output's already dropped. I don't know if there's one exercise you can pick, but high hurdle hops, maybe close to it, is a great way to destroy anybody's elasticity and their ability to create good ground contact times. That's a measurement thing. You have to measure it. You know, what heights does somebody achieve their best ground contact times at? So you can then maybe go a little above it, a little below it uh, in terms of the hurdle heights. That was Randy Huntington, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Lost Empire Herbs. You can get 15% off my favorite herbs for well-being and athletic performance by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. About three years ago, I got into herbalism after having Logan Christopher on the podcast, starting with the Phoenix formula, which literally had my body buzzing after I took it. Not in a jittery way, like coffee, but in a way where I really felt the herbs working with my body. Within two weeks, I was already noticeably stronger in the weight room. And ever since, I've made herbalism a regular part of my training regimen. I've totally ditched any sort of caffeine-laden pre-workout, and I really enjoy using supplements that come directly from the earth. Lost Empire Herbs was started by Logan Christopher and his two brothers to help bring back the lost empire of nature in our connection to it, and to bring the power of herbs to the general public. Again, if you want to see my favorite herbs, such as Shilijit, which has been mentioned by other podcast guests on this show, Phoenix Formula, and more, as well as get 15% off your purchase alongside a 365-day money-back guarantee, head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. Welcome to another episode. Thanks for being here with us. I really enjoy digging into case studies of improvement, especially in elite athletes. Athletes who are already at a fairly high or even elite level who then have to chip away at their personal best uh, in performance outputs to get to an even higher level that gap from great to elite or elite to ultra elite, I guess it would be the term for it, is so worth studying because what it takes to get there, to bridge that cap, takes so much coaching brilliance. It takes understanding of so many systems in athlete adaptation. The case study we'll be speaking about today is Subing Shan in particular, and he is coached by Randy Huntington. Randy is a track and field coach who has been on the show four years ago and has spent his recent years as the national track and field coach for the Chinese Athletic Association. Randy has over 45 years of coaching experience. He is a master or a USATF master coach in the jumps and has been the coach for many world-class athletes, Olympians, and world record holders. Mike Powell is one in particular you may be familiar with if you're familiar with the world of track and field who broke Bob Beeman's uh, long jump record and Mike's long jump record still stands today. With Subing Shan, most recently, Randy has been having tremendous success in his time coaching in Asia, and Randy will be getting more into just the nature of Sue's recent 9.83 second 100 meter run. And just quickly before we talk more about that, that within that run itself, Sue ran at the 60 meter split a world record of 6.29, which that actually isn't counted for record purposes, but uh, as a split, it was the fastest anyone ever ran at 60. And that 629 converts to around a blazing 4.07 second 40-yard dash. 
So I'll just leave you with that as the prelude to what we'll be getting into and the training that took Sue from about a 999 to that 983 and then the corresponding drops in his acceleration performance. So on the show today, Randy will speak about some of those training elements that helped Sue as well as his other athletes achieve their recent results. Today, Randy will get into his views on special strength training for speed, particularly on the level of the lower leg. He'll speak on the use of banded and wearable resistance in speed training, as well as get into some great nuts and bolts on resisted training and specifically sled sprint work. On the back end of the show, Randy will talk about elastic and fascial system trainings, some shortcomings or pitfalls that are often run into in elastic training, and then how to optimize an athlete's elastic response in terms of both plyometrics and even the surface that they're running on. This was an amazing show. I can't wait to get started on it, so I will leave this pre-roll here. Let's get on to this absolute must-listen with Coach Randy Huntington. Randy, welcome to the show. It's great to have you back. It's been probably about four years since I last chatted with you. What's been new since our last talk? I'm sure a lot, but anything you would care to cover with what's been happening with you and coaching recently? Well, I, I you know, <laughs> certainly the Olympics were, were were something special. But I mean, I since we last talked, and I don't think I was coaching Sue when we last talked. I think I just because that would have been four years ago. Would have been I started coaching him just after that last conversation, and obviously his progress has been pretty spectacular and it's been it's been fun to watch him grow and and succeed uh Wang Jainan you know set the Chinese record in the long jump at 847 tied the record with the athlete I had before him and Sonny and then uh this just just this last November I started uh, with um an 800 meter female in Wang Chenyu and brought her along slowly and trying to teach her some things and she she uh, did a really nice job, finished fifth at the Olympics. And if she'd not lost that third 200, I think she would have been uh, probably a medalist. And she knows it. She realizes that she messed up. So that, uh, I hadn't been home in two years. I just got home just four weeks ago after two years of having uh, to stay in China because of COVID. And we've got, let me think, a lot has changed in China, which is really fun to watch culturally not culturally mean within the sport not the culture of china to see the warm-ups for instance the chinese now do warm-ups that everybody did the exact same warm-up before i don't mean like kind of i mean every mm -hmm. single track athlete in the country did the exact same warm-up and then uh, that's all changed they're all starting to individualize their warm-ups they're starting to understand warming up we're starting to understand sprint mechanics. We're starting to understand the start. You know, Dr. Mann has been over a few times. He's, he's also helping everybody understand that. So I think we'll see some changes in the next uh, quadrennium. Maybe not Paris, but by 28, uh, you might see some young kids finally come out of China that are, that are there's going to be more than one Sioux. Mm -hmm. 1.5 billion people, there has to be more than one Sioux, yeah. you know? That's awesome. How how old did you say that long jumper was again? Who set that? There was a national record at what age? Well, yeah, he's ninety four, nineteen ninety four. Okay, or ninety six. You see, he was he was world junior champion in two thousand fourteen. So he was eighteen, fourteen. That's seven years later. Twenty five. He's twenty 
26 or 27. This okay, year. got it. Might for have some, been almost 19. Yeah. For some yeah. reason, I thought you might have said like 37 or something or 47. No, I was no, like, no. I was like, no, I, no. I must have heard that wrong. <laughs> no, he's not that old. No. Yeah, but he's, I know Sue is is older though. We were just having this conversation yeah, before, yeah, and she's it, 32. Yeah, that blew my mind. Like. Yeah. Not only um, did Sue set the that Asian record and run nine eight three, but at having like not very long legs is a little bit older. I mean, I think a lot of people, especially people who are listening to this who aren't really in the track crowd, could you just tell a little bit more about how how impressive that accomplishment was and what he ran and kind of the lead up to that? Well, I think the impressive thing in Sue's case is that he ran six twenty nine for his sixty meters. And 373, I believe it was, for the 30, which would be the fastest times in history under any conditions, whether you're in 100 meters or you're in a 60-meter race. And I don't know that he'll race World Indoors this year. We haven't really decided. But it would be really great to see him and Coleman just light it up, Mm -hmm. you know, in the 60. Particularly if they could do it in the 60 where they didn't have a wall at the end, which, you know, where they don't have to start deaccelerating before they get to the end. Because they are, uh, I mean, he at 629 was under the current world record and at sea level, you know, whereas most of the fastest 60s in history have been done at elevation. I'm not sure if you know this offhand, but all the people, the American football based, if we look in at all the times and records, like, do you have any idea what that comes out to for the 40? I mean, I know Christian ran 4.12 in the 40. So we're obviously talking less than or faster than even that, right? Yeah, it's probably the 407, 408 range. Nice. I think that's like the yeah. kind of stat that if that you show that to everyone who's really into American football, people are like, whoa. Like, I mean, because 983, I mean, obviously that's cruising in the 100, but yeah, it's not the fastest by any means. But you think Bolt ran 631 or 632 when he ran 958, when he went into under 96, and Sue was faster than that. Now, of course, there's a difference because he's got. A 0.895 GT versus probably a 120 GT. I mean, you get, I think there's almost 30 centimeters difference between their leg lengths. It's not quite that much, but I don't remember exactly. It's, it's huge. Yeah. Almost you know? a foot lo- like the, yeah. Gr- GT being greater trochanter, right? Yeah. Like, greater trochanter length. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. That, yeah, yeah. No, no, no worries. It's, it's just funny. I'm almost like chuckling in my head thinking about two sprinters standing side by side and one's legs are literally like a foot longer. I mean, it, it's like, what you do can you see it when they're racing? I mean, if you look at uh, 2015 Beijing, I think they race together. Uh, you can just see them standing by each other. And I mean, it's, you know, Sue's about this tall you know, to bolt. I mean, it's almost a foot difference in height. Sue's five, seven, almost five, seven. And bolt, of course, is six, five or so. Yeah. That's, it's tough to, it's tough to compete with that. It's tough to compete with it. Yeah. I remember speaking of Ralph, man, I, I think, I don't know if this was in his, um, his book that's out. I, I can't remember the name of it exactly offhand, but it was something to the tune of if you're this height, and I'm sure leg length being the, the bigger thing within context of that height, but I think it was it something, is. something yeah. like five nine, and I'm sure maybe the leg length associated with five nine. But if you're five nine or shorter, like you cannot set the world record in the hundred because of how insane your frequency would have to be. I don't know how much that, or you know, I even with what Sue was running based off of the possible times, it's just to me, it's just mind blowing how um, someone who is that height could run that fast. Yeah, I mean, he's he was over five steps per second so which is only one or maybe two other people ever done you know we've got 
if we can get another centimeter or even a centimeter and a half out of the stride lines, uh, particularly in from 60 meters on, maybe we can get them under nine, eight. Hard to say. That was pretty, I mean, nine, eight, three is pretty special. Yeah. You know, it's, it's going to be hard to, hard to duplicate that, but we're going to try, see what we can do being a year older. And, you know, we're just going to look for ways to improve, particularly the last portion of his race, not just technically, but the last portion of his race, energy system wise as well. So, uh, looking at his progression, so last time we talked was right before you had started working with him, or maybe right when. What are some key things that you feel like were really helpful that helped bring him from that around ten o hundred? And I'm not sure what he was running in the sixty at that time, or equivalent to forty, but six fifty four. Okay, or so. I think he might have run six fifty. Might have run. I think he ran six fifty four or six fifty. I can't remember in Portland in 2016. He was fourth. The very first thing that stuck out to me was looking at his uh, scientific numbers. His ground contact times were really slow. He, he just wasn't reacting to the ground like everybody. Now, was that because he had bad shoes? Was he not getting the most, the most recent spikes? What was it? Well, I had a good feeling what it was. I took him over to the Kaiser machine, Kaiser seated calf, and just tested him on to see what kind of power he had. His power output was about 735, 36 watts, which was weaker than my weakest female triple jumper. So he had no, he had no power, no ability to sustain the forces he was applying to the ground. And, and they were where the rubber meets the road is, you know, the, the key. So our um, first goal was to just get that soleus strength as high as we could get it. To give you an example, he's now in the 26 to 2700 watt range. So he's four times wow. more powerful. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that's a concerted effort to do that. Uh, I knew that he was relatively strong. He's, a, he's much stronger now. His, his squat is at the oh, 175, 180 kilo range, you know, which is 2.7 times his body weight or so. And we're still doing them all velocity based. His Kaiser squat uh, power output is well over 3,000 watts. His belt squat is well over 3,000, it's over 4,000 watts. Uh, so everything we're looking at is power. And so, and, and, and in his case, I knew that okay, one was the foot the ground contact time, two was technically what was he doing? He was still a lot backside. He had a, a huge ellipse, a big wheel behind, he wasn't balanced. He was not, he, he was turning over, but he didn't have any stride length. So my goal, and then his start was really, really, even though he was a quick starter, he wasn't a fast starter. You know, he'd be ahead of people. He was quick, but then he was done. I mean, he was done in, in, you know, at, at 25 meters. They didn't catch him this last time. And they didn't catch him actually until 70 meters or 75. So he, but he hit his max velocity, I think around 58 meters or so. I don't have that number in front of me and we got to push that out a little bit farther. So to get his overall power, lower body power, higher, and, and then elasticity wise, he couldn't rebound off the ground. He literally didn't know how he, he didn't have the coordination to rebound. So we started getting him into this double leg, easy, low amplitude rebounding, and then slowly brought that up. Things like that. It's, it's not rocket science. It's looking at the weaknesses making sure that you can change those 
and then uh, finding the right tools. I mean, I started incorporating the 1080 in it in 2015 with my other athletes, and Sue got to meet it in 2017. And that, of course, helped to start immensely. The Exigit tools really, really helped him understand the feeling of his max velocity. I don't use the Exigit tools necessarily just for additional force application because of increased mass. They use it so that they can feel where their limbs are during movement. But that little extra mass, they can tell what's happening better. So that's kind of some of the things that have improved it, Tim. Flexibility is still our biggest issue. We have to work on that. That's the goal this year. Yeah, it, it's interesting to me with, well, I, I like the Exogen. I've been using that a lot. And I, like you said, I think it's very easy to be very black and white. Like, well, here's something and you look at it, I guess, in a very database point and say, well, it's just for potentiation or extra weight. But it's like, well, no, this can help with proprioception. The way that it manipulates gravity can cause the foot to strike a little bit differently. Um, I, I love it for the the teaching element just as much, I would say, if not more than, I guess you could say, just the added weight. And yeah, so I, I, I don't use it as a conditioner very often. I use it mostly as, well, I'll use it as a conditioner, but I'll use it as a conditioner within technique. I'll condition technique with it. But it, it really is a, one of the better teaching tools outside the activator belt, which I've used for you know, 30, 30 plus years. I don't even know if they're around anymore because I've got them all of mine in China. Mm-hmm. And uh, like other things, some, some Chinese guy ripped it off and he's making it. So. Um, but uh, those two, I mean, I, I see three things that really are my best teaching tools. And, and you can put a fourth, but the first two are kind of the same. And the 1080 and a sled both teach how you accelerate. It slows it down, but it doesn't have to necessarily only slow it down. But it, it helps you understand how to apply the force in the proper, proper plane, the right vector, if you wish. And then the exogen. And then the activator belt. Those three things to me are the three most important. I call them integration tools, the integrating the weight room into the, onto the track, the things you would do on the track to integrate what you're gaining in the weight room so you don't lose it. So it becomes specific to what you really need to do on the track. Yeah, that's cool. I was going to ask, well, first off, I actually had some more follow-up questions about the foot and foot power and then sure. some stuff with his the first half of the race because I'm 654 or 650 down to what, a 629. 629. 629. That's yeah. crazy. But I wanted to ask you, what's the activator belt? I don't know if we talked about this last time, but I'm, I'm curious what that is. Oh, the activator belt is a belt that was invented by an Australian and it's a waist belt, okay? And it's got four connection points, two in front, well, six really two in front two in the side two in the back and it's got ankle cuffs and then you've got rubber bands that you use or tubing that you attach different ways to challenge Mm. the uh the limb and what it's for is then is it learning how to boom how to actually accelerate that leg down against the rubber band resistance while you're running while you're sprinting you know you can do it while you're drilling while you're sprinting we do full sprints with it you have to, if you don't do it right, it's just going to kick your legs up behind you. And if you don't recover properly, it, teach, it teaches you almost immediately how to get the energy groove, how to groove the, mo- the pattern, the motion, the movement, the forces. And the exogen does the same thing. So when we do drills, we'll do activator belt, exogen, off. Hmm. Cool. 
you know, in that order and in that way, because we're looking at ground contact, recovery with the exogen, obviously a little bit of extra force depending upon how much you put on, and then grooving that into uh, your actual drill. Yeah, with uh, some of the online track and field clients I've been working with, I've had them utilize some um, exogen-based stuff or Lila-based stuff. And I mean, you could mm-hmm. do this with any, I remember back in the 1998, 99, there was these like little thigh sleeves that Don Beebe, a NFL football player was endorsing. And it was, it was kind of like, it was almost like a thigh based, like a way yeah, that was, that. that was, that was about 12 years after we were using them when Don <laughs> was used, we brought that one out because we were doing, we were doing thigh, thigh weights and thigh pants back in the, in the eighties with Mike, Mike and Willie. And that was one of the first things I used because I, you know, you can't underestimate the need for the psoas and the other Mm -hmm. hip flexors to be really powerful and strong. Somewhere out there on the internet, there's a picture of Asafa's psoas versus somebody else's. And I can remember who was it. I mean, it it is amazing how big the cross-sectional area of the psoas is. And it's something that if you look at what Ralph's talking about today, it is what he is addressing in the 400 meters and 200 meters in terms of fatigue, specific fatigue in the race. So, yeah, I, that's, I, and hip flexors is a question I had for you down the line a little bit. It was, um, Lance Walker, previous guest was uh, mentioning something about the hip flexors and you and Joseph Coyne and things like that. And so I'm excited to get to that. It is interesting. Cause I, yeah, back when I was using those, I was like 16 or 17 and the workout was, something to the tune of like do three or four sprints, like 30 or 40 meter dashes, and then you drop it or don't use it for the last one. Or I think either that or I just decided to do that. I forget. But it was, um, always, it was always awesome to take that thing off for the last couple sprints and you felt the, the just yeah. how much better you were on that last one. If you did too many, you were in trouble because, you, you know, if you're using any of the, the ex- externally weighted devices, you've always got to be watching technique. And as soon as technique, starts to even fade a little bit, you take them off. And that's the end of your set or the end of your session, whichever you wish for that, that particular exercise. But, you know, I, and I find that we are such a time-conscious society that we've sort of lost touch with how much rest you need to get this done right. You know, if you're going to use external loading, you better be prepared to rest a while. You know, you can't, you don't want to do external loading in a circuit, particularly if the circuit then is contributing to bad technique. So we, and I think most of the, most of the coaches out there these days, look at the technical model first, train the model, you know, get the model right, and then create a fitness level for that model. That's the second part of the equation. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, simplyfaster.com. Simplyfaster.com is a fantastic coaching resource not only on the level of their blog and all the information they put out, but also on the level of their online store. With the click of a button, you can see and purchase the technology that is utilized by so many of the world's great coaches. In simplyfaster.com's online store, you can have access to training technology such as blood flow restriction training, timing systems, including the free lap timing system, bar speed tracking devices, a variety of resistance training machines, such as the K-Box, and also Kaiser training units, which Kaiser training units being strongly recommended by sprint coach Randy Huntington, for example. You'll also get access to motorized sprint training units such as the 1080 sprint, force plates, and much more. 
You can check that all out by heading to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, with, with that time drop, especially the, the 60 meter time drop. Um, and I, I yeah. would imagine the 1080 and, and just resisted sprinting. Like you said, he was spinning his wheels too fast out of the start. I mean, I'd imagine that. that his, his start position was really poor. I mean, it was really poor. You know, his feet were way too close to the line. So it gets a quick start, but it doesn't give a fast start for, for, for later on. The 1080 is, a, is another piece that, you know, a little bit, it, it's funny because with what JB has done in, in France and looking at the heavier sleds and stuff, I still use a relatively heavy sled, but my 1080 rarely goes past 13 kg, you know, because I'll test it and look at where do they hit their maximum power because power is two components, force and velocity. So at a certain part of the year, I'm looking at the, at the force component for increasing power. But later on, I want to look at the velocity component for increasing power. So it, it, I'm always monitoring the, the power output and whether the force is higher because we're increasing the force or it's higher because we're actually getting faster. So eventually you leave the force alone and you just keep getting faster and faster and faster because you want, you want that to be, you want the power to come from the velocity side. Gotcha. After the initial step out of the blocks, not the initial step, the initial contraction. So really, those the really heavy sleds is more for that first like step or two, and then beyond that, it's optimal it's, power it, zones. Yeah, you you lose it. I mean, it's really two steps. It's not even two. It's really one. <laughs> it's just the, it's just the first step because the, you know the first step is you, you got to push off the back, and then as soon as you push off the back, that foot's got to come back down very mm-hmm. quick, and you've got to have a quick switching. You still can't do that under the load of a heavy sled. What it does do with a heavy sled is it teaches you how to apply force to the ground and the range of motion that you need. You, you have to emphasize range of motion on the heavy sled. So you want to be strong through the range of motion you're going to be working in your start. Gotcha. Um, so for people who don't happen to have a 1080, a great tool, obviously, but might be out of the price range of a few people. So just advice, if you don't have something that's super precise and allows that, if you just have a sled, what would your, I guess, advice be for people looking to build sprinters and just kind of have ge- a general gauge on, okay, this is the time for the heavy sleds. All right, now we can move past this into more of a, a power with a less of a speed decrement. Do you have any thoughts on just general principles? Well, in the past, what I what I do is I certainly would, uh, a heavy sled to me is a sled with a pretty much close to your body weight, not quite. And then we would half the body weight. And then we were quarter the body weight. Now, these are just general, mm-hmm. you know, because for like, for instance, most young women have a real hard time coming out of blocks because they're just not strong enough. They just aren't strong enough to come out of blocks well, starting blocks well. So the, the sled gives them that sense of how much force it takes to actually move their body. There are other cheaper versions. There's, there's some isokinetic devices you can attach to the fence. You can double, triple tube, tube somebody for three or four steps. You can take and load them up with a little extra body mass. That that would be a, a chest heavier than what oxygen actually allows you to go to right now. There's just different ways you can get those first two steps, first three steps. I mean, at four, step four, what are you at? I don't know, seventy percent of your velocity already. Mm-hmm. That, I can't remember the exact number, but you know that tells you how important those first four steps are. Yeah, they. 
I forget if it was Ralph Mann's research or someone else's and Chris Corfis that one of the track football consortiums was highlighting this as, and maybe JB Marin had spoken on it. I'm not sure exactly who. I'm sure it's probably been maybe multiple people, but the, Ralph the, the for zero, sure. Yeah. Like the zero step idea, like basically that, that your velocity at step one is pretty highly correlated to where you'll be at like 30 meters. Although I'm sure that if you're just over just pure force, and you don't have power and you know, running technique ability that you're going to fall off at that point. But there was some very high correlation to that early acceleration and just what you even see in step one or step two. Yeah. I mean, we spent the last year and a half working on that on Sue, just step one, because he fought me on it at first because it felt so odd, you know, but just to get his step one, that first step on the ground, that sets up the rest of the, certainly sets up the rest of the acceleration pattern. And, uh, Many people are very passive in that first step, and that's a very active step. And by active, I mean it's active that way. You know, and you see people just set their foot on the ground rather than bam, and actually applying force with that first step as well. Not, not obviously in the blocks you're applying force, but then that very first free step, boom, you've got to be able to apply force back into the ground with that step. Yeah, I think it might have been Cal Dietz on this show who was talking about the different segments of a 20 meter dash or yeah, 20. And it was, it was a base, every a rudimentary formula where you had like your 10 yard split, your 10 to 20 split and using that. But then he had gone further into the zero to five. And he had mentioned that that was, that portion was the most impacted by just like pure leg isometric strength, almost like you needed to have this. And I almost look at the same thing of like a very heavy sled. It's, it's a similar realm. Like it's not moving very fast yet. It's a very impulse driven kind of strength that's not like it's not it's only the muscles only going to be activating for a very short window. <laughs> it's not that's like a right. squat. It's really, really, really short. That's why you're like you need max strength for what three, three, you know, three, one, 300 milliseconds and then you're out. You're done. Now let's start going. That's because you're already moving. You've already overcome the inertia of the body. Once you've overcome that initial inertia, it's it's a it's a new game. So getting the body to move at rest into that, that, those next steps, once it's moving, your joint speeds are so high that it's a, your, your max strength becomes almost irrelevant. Yeah. It's too fast. And to go backwards for a quick second and to get Sue to understand, particularly when we were talking about the ground contact times, but, but to get him to understand and for most athletes to understand that this is non-volitional. You cannot voluntarily contract as fast as you do in the sprints it's it's beyond the ability of the human body to hit the ground and have ground contact times that fast and it is completely elastic in nature so this becomes a big part because even that first step the reason i brought that up even that first step becomes elastic in nature Mm -hmm. pretty quickly you know the first few steps you get you're you're grinding it out a little bit but with the great sprinters it ain't a much you know it's 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 not a lot, and Rolf Ullman and his uh, his buddies in Malmo had started. To, and Rolf and I talked about this when he was with me in, in China. But you know, we we come up with in some indexes, the elastic indexes. It'd be good to have him on the show to talk about this because it'd be much more specific. And well, we're starting to be find a way to actually measure the elastic ability of that athlete as an index. So instead of an RSI, it's a little bit different because as I see it, I, I use the term and people talk about it a little bit now, but DIS, you know, dynamic isometric strength, 
where there really isn't a true isometrics. It is this point between eccentric and concentric because it's always, it, it, in elasticity, it's always eccentric to concentric. And I think this is, the, the, these guys have found a way to measure that. And that's vital for, for us in sport. That, that is really one of the key things. And that's why I think it'd be exciting for you to have them chat about it some. Yeah. I'd be, yeah, I'd be really fascinated in that. I, I've experimented with some different forms of even just RSIs and as well as the idea that an RSI, a double leg RSI on a mat is not, <laughs> it's still way slower than a single leg sprint contact. There's definite oh, differences there. Not even close. And it's different than a single leg RSI on a mat. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For, yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I've had some conversations with um, just using a basic mat called a plyo mat that I've really enjoyed, like an updated just jump mat. But the Mm -hmm. um, the guy who's um, I've been talking to who created that was talking about how helpful like a single leg RSI is and that he, he's seeing his high level athletes even even compared to uh, in light of a standing vertical. It seems like the single leg RSI is almost the biggest highlighter of people who are elite at the speed power sports more so than at least like, not like shot put, but like football and basketball and those kind of things. Well, it'd be interesting, you know, many years ago, not many, but probably as I would think the last time I had a conversation was it was probably 2010 or 11 or somewhere in there. But there was a system out there called Train Your Frame. Are you familiar with that? Uh, no, I'm not. There's a couple of brothers out of Arkansas, and there's still some doctors that still have the system. But what they were doing is they were looking at, at the anthropometrics of different sports and what anthropometrics actually puts you in a better position to succeed. So. For instance, with the jumpers, we're seeing a one-to-one -one ratio, close to one-to-one -one between femur and tibia. Right. And now when you look at RSI, I think you'll start to see if people would start measuring femur lengths, GT to knee notch, D notch down to ground, you start to see these RSI indexes would be reflective of the anthropometrics available to the athlete. So they'd be at a an advantage there's just a sort of mechanical advantage to jump yeah for me personally i always felt like i i was aware of these things uh even when i was in high school i remember i'd be sitting on the bench in basketball and looking at like the guy next to me who was the same height and my tibias were like pretty much the same or longer but yeah. my femurs were always shorter like i have short femurs and i was a high jumper and i always think well what if my femurs were just a little bit longer that would have been helpful <laughs> so uh it's interesting with the one-to-one -one ratio i mean it makes definitely definitely makes sense to me well and, and it may not be one-to-one -one for others like wong jainan is not and i think that's why he has so many knee problems hmm. um he probably would have been a better soccer player to be honest he's a very good soccer player as it is but these are that's one area that i don't think we measure well enough as yeah. part of our testing systems interesting we don't we measure height, we measure weight, we might look at arm length on occasion, but we don't look at the whole system. And the train your frame system, and not mind you, was it perfect? No. But I think it was part of what, what should have developed further. I believe the Canadians had an anthropometric system that was pretty darn good as well. I'd have to ask Lauren Seagrave about that. I remember Lauren and I talked about it years ago. But I think it's an unheralded component. And for those that are working with kids and are looking at LTAD models and looking at 
pathways for their success and how you could help parents and children see which sport they might want to be in, I think that's an, it's, it's an important tool to start to take advantage of. Yeah. Oh, I'd be, yeah, I'd definitely be interested in that. It's, it's been fun with my own kids who are three and five, just trying to think about, you know, just trying to put them in all sorts of different sports and things and see how they like it. And I think about, I mean, I love track, but I look at like my, my kids and I, I don't, I mean, if they want to do it, that's, that's wonderful. But like my son has like, he's like me, he's got really short femurs, super bouncy, but you know, I mean, he could be okay. Right. Like, it's just, I do think mm-hmm. about what sport, you know, is your body type and, you know, suited the best for? I mean, not that I'm going to necessarily push them there, but just at least expose them and maybe they'll like it. I, I at least think about those things, though, with watching my kids. And, and you know, you think about, well, what, yeah, what are we best suited for and how do we at least expose kids to that early on and give them a chance to uh, experience whatever sport there is that their body's suited for? I think it's really good stuff. Yeah. And having said that, I mean, Sue is a pretty balanced uh, femur to tibia length, even though it's very short, you know, so it's not the total length that's the issue. It's the ratio that's hmm. the issue. Yeah. Not having yet. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Again, it makes that 983 and, and 407 even that much more incredible. I wanted to ask you before I forget the, um, yeah. with the sleds. Uh, do you do a lot of like, like contrast work within the sleds as well? Like, like do like weighted sleds, then, then go into the regular sprinting or go back to, do you, oh, always. Oh, gotcha. Always. Always. Yeah, I've been doing that since the late 70s. Yeah, it's just it's a component of the program. Um, I, I, I did, you know, for a year, I tried to do it without weighted sleds and only do the 1080, and it didn't work. Hmm. So there's, there is something to be said for overcoming, using mass to overcome the inertia of the body, the initial inertial load, the impulse inertial load, if you wish. And then the 1080 flies or whatever system you want to use at this particular point. And I don't want to do an ad for 1080 at this point because there's other devices that I think probably are better now. Yeah, it's it's interesting um, with the, the the complexes as well. I When I was back at Cal, I was talking with um, Mark Jellison, was a former decathlete who was there and the personal trainer in the area. And he was talking about a a sled workout someone had put him through where basically it's just you start with a heavy and you just take a plate off every mm-hmm. couple sprints or every sprint. And I, I went and did that. And honestly, it was almost the best feeling, like overall, just overall feeling workout that I had done. And from that point on, it, I, I had heard as well, like like Charles Poliquin talking about wave load everything. And we with the wave loading, we mm-hmm. oftentimes do in the weight room. I was like, wow, well, the sleds are even more specific than the weight room. So shouldn't even like we have that mindset here and even maybe more so. And I've heard of other good coaches doing like the wave load or, or using sleds as potentiation as well. So it, it yeah, definitely makes perfect sense that you've been doing it for much longer than most of us have even been thinking about training. Yeah, it, it, it's a it's a the wave load, if you wish to use that term, is part of. So we'll always do a two on one off, uh, change the load to then 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 off. What I found is the reason I did that is because I found by if you do three on one off that your power output's already dropped. So two on, one off, you're still keeping your power up, which means that your velocities, your coordination staying high, your velocity staying high enough. So I do things in threes. Uh, occasionally I do them in four if I want to push the nervous system a little bit and fatigue it. Yeah. Even when we're doing sprints, you know, I'm, I'm doing usually threes, max four, 
that doesn't that's the short sprint stuff not not long stuff it's different yeah that makes sense with the nervous system to me i almost look at the nervous system as a little bit more i i, I don't know the word i'm searching for so it's almost like a this this um holistic maybe back to my motor learning professor in college this was 20 years ago i remember him just talking about the like you can't grasp the brain and the nervous system the way you can like database things. It's it's something that you have to almost you have to create your research to intuit it. And all I'm saying by that is I think that I I always look at what other people are doing, anecdotes, results. I, I think about this might be out there, but like like Tesla's numbers and three. <laughs> Just there's a power in, in numbers. No, there's, there's, those are all things that you should be considering, and they're there for a reason. You know, we always, we, we kind of get ourselves caught up in talking about, well, we talked, we, we, I mentioned elasticity and we talk about power, but when you st- start talking about those things in isolation or discreetly, you can get yourself in trouble because the body is a system and it's a very complex system. And, you know, it's only recently, I mean, within the last three or four years that we're starting to really, uh, to understand the whole fascial system and its communication network with respect to the central nervous system. So the feedback mechanisms embedded within the elastic uh, tissue, those now become a big part of what happens in track and field. I've said it for years, and people who've listened, I've said it for years. But you know, and, and this is not my idea, but you know, Gideon Ariel said this to me in 1979, and I've, I've never forgotten it. And 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 I've used that as kind of a mantra for understanding exactly what. I need to do in the weight room and on the track. And he says, Randy, muscles set up joints to take advantage of the elastic ability of all the tissues. So when we start talking about power, force, we're talking about the force it takes to set up the joint. Now, overcoming a nurse is the one time where that is a little different than you do have pure muscular force. Once you're past that, you're starting to look at how do these muscles set up these joints? to take advantage of elasticity, which is so much stronger and so much more powerful than anything we could create uh, in just a, a, a simple muscular contraction. You know, unless you're, you've got a huge amount of adrenaline going, you got to pick up a car or something, yeah. you know, but so that, that, that system, that understanding how the elastic system contributes is that it is part of the pathway. I mean, when I first read, Thomas's book, not Anatomy Trains, but before that he did an article called T3, maybe 19, I don't know, 98, 97, 98, I can't remember. But when Myers first wrote that article and I read it and I went, uh, yeah, this is sport. Because it, it immediately blended right back into what Gideon Ariel had been telling me, you know, 30 years before. And now I understood more that, you know, Thomas was, was, really explaining now what the elastic system looked like. And of course, Stecco and others in the Czech, the Prague school, they're all now elastic. And, and obviously much of it is still based on Buckminster Fuller and, and, and a lot of the tensegrity concepts that, that, that come with um, what we've seen in architecture, the human body is, you know, the model for all that. But I think that um, we heavily underestimate the elastic contribution, particularly in max velocity sprinting. Now I'm saying that now it's 2021, but I've been saying it since 1989. So, you know, I, it, it's changed. People are starting to, to look at it, but boy, that's the whole goal is to figure out how to 
get the athlete to access that elastic ability. Blood work is a common analysis in the regime of elite athletes. It quantifies many dimensions and metrics of an athlete's physiology and helps one to see windows of potential performance improvement. Today's episode is also sponsored by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker was founded in 2009 by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics. The company uses a blood test and patented algorithm to analyze your body's physiological markers, providing you with a clear picture of what's going on inside of you. Inside Tracker then offers science-backed recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. In using Inside Tracker myself, it was truly fascinating to see the many metrics of my own physiology, looking at things like hormone levels, inflammation, blood oxygen-related metrics, and much more. If you're interested in an Inside Tracker analysis, for a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. And then this Black Friday in particular, you can save $200 on the Inside Tracker Ultimate Plan. To check these deals out, go to insidetracker.com slash justflysports. Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You had mentioned that quote uh, with the muscles setting up the the tendons and the elastic tissues. Uh, the last time we had our- Last time, yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I, I've, it's been on my brain ever since, actually. I've, I've probably used that quote a few times in that time period, and it's just been something I've regularly thought about. There was a research, and, and it's very theoretical, so it's hard to like pin it. You know, you'd have to look at how they put together their models. But when I was putting together my book, Speed Strength, I highlighted this. Uh, it was something to the tune of if basically like if muscles didn't exist in the human body and it was just a system that, now I don't know what would provide the propulsion, but it was just like a cyclical system that was running along. It could run like 20 or 30% faster. Again, I don't know how they got there, but it, uh, it was just interesting to think of, I guess, maybe you look at like the, the like horses or cheat or animals that have like very little muscle mass on the extremities and it's just a very highly elastic system at least on the outside definitely not on the core muscles but yeah. ah, it's just it was really interesting to me yeah and that's that's in sprinting I mean, imagine you take that concept which is what i've been doing and started to do with chen yu you know just to the 800 meters i mean this girl ran her so she ran 400 800 1500 this year she'd rarely run 400 She'd run one 1,500, and I think she might have competed in 1,000 somewhere in the U.S., and then her 800. So her, her 1,500 PB was 425. Her first 1,500 was, was 407 this year. Wow. She, only ran, she only ran three. Her 400 PB was like 5360, and she ran 52, and we did no 400 training, not specific to the 400. And then her 800 was... One time she went under two minutes. She basically had 203, 204, and she ended up at 157 flat in the, in the Olympic final. In her case, and the point here is that its impact in 100 meters is incredible. But when you phase that out or take that and move it out into 400, 800, 1500, 5000, 10,000 marathon, when you look at if you can utilize more elastic ability in every step you're using, much less energy system metabolites, if you wish. You're using less energy because it's non-volitional. It doesn't take energy. You don't have to push. You know, it's not in, there's a muscular contraction, but it's minimized by a certain percent. And you can now run longer at a certain speed using less of your body's energy that you need to run at that speed. If the distance coaches can figure out this. And we've talked about it for a long time. This is nothing new. I mean, I think Alberto was trying to before that whole whole, whole thing went down. 
I know that uh, I know that Coach Vigil gets it, and the group up at uh, Big Bear, and the group that was up at Bishop, and uh, they they started to understand it. But just the same, when I see distance kids do drills, I can tell that the coaches still don't understand exactly how much the elastic tissues can help contribute to their their ability. Yeah, I've I've definitely seen that uh, even recently. Uh, a client I was working with online who we were training sprinting for a while. And he had really big improvements. And then uh, he went off on a, like a cross-country road trip and gave up on uh, sprint training just for along with some life changes. But along with that, he went back to just doing some distance running because it was convenient. And he noted how much faster his distance running was after those um, all the sprint stuff. And we did a lot of elastic-based stuff, fascial stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just thinking about every step getting better. And I even noticed that when I went to, I mean, I was not fast at the 400. Again, short femurs, maybe I'll just blame it on that. But in the four, no, that, that's actually a 400 advantage. You've got the 400. That, you have a 400 uh, ratio. Really? Short like having, femurs, longer tibia. Oh, I didn't yeah. realize that. Yeah. So I, yeah. I, um, yeah, I, was, I ran 54 in the relay in high school. It's, it's not fast, but I, I, in college, I was playing basketball and I would consider myself more elastic then than I was my, at least my first year of university. Go to university start doing a lot of like a lot of longer tempo sprinted workouts was dominating what I did stop playing basketball and it's funny because I was actually doing more speed endurance work but I remember my first 400 or four by four it was the last one they put me in because I ran so bad I ran like a 57 (laughs) and I just remember thinking of how much harder it was I was like that was so hard to be a 57 and I mean that time's so bad but it um it was it's interesting it always stuck with me just that base of of explosive fascial uh, type dynamics was was really i think i've heard dan path talk about that from his days of coaching high school like 800 runners you know they they were almost their best at that point with his coaching there they the further they got away from basketball on that level they actually seem to be losing a very strong component of that fascial and elastic dynamics that like yeah. that helps you bounce along yeah it's uh you know it's I think when you, it's, it's, it's why you see so many kids come off the basketball team doing so well in the first phase of the high school track program and then dying out as they go, you know, they're just coming out with all these springs, elasticity. And then, then we managed to run it out of them yeah. uh, because we're, we're, we're forgetting that that's what gets, that's what you need. You know, you need to continue that. And that knee down component of the leg is heavily misunderstood at times. I'm not, I'm sure that many, many people understand it. So don't get me wrong. But, you know, when you start looking at trying to find ways to take a, for instance, Sue, a 10 guy and get him to, to 9.9, I mean, it's a struggle for every tenth of a second after 10. I mean, you're, oh, yeah. you're working, you're working your ass off to try to get uh, another tenth of a second, you know, or hundredth for that matter. Yeah. Um, and I think in, in and I, I know I'm going off on tangents here, but I think in Tokyo, you had, Two things that really helped everybody. One, the track was amazing. And two, the shoes, the new spikes, the Nike spikes were definitely an advantage for, for most of them. Yeah. So, the, more like strength shoes almost, right? Like they were like uh like up, like they had like more the old, on the ball the of the foot. Jump shoes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like the old jump training shoes. Yeah. I'd be curious actually yeah. if you have just a quick second to get your take on those shoes, just then and the dynamics of those. That was interesting to me. Well, I think that they, they, they were okay shooting use as long as you didn't do too much. People just jump, 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 jump. They had all these Achilles problems mm. and gap problems. And if they had done anything in moderation with those and kept the amplitude fairly low, 
I think that you would have you would have seen them exist today. They're just gone from the face of the planet. There was just people just didn't know how to use them, you know, and oh, and overuse them. So they created a lot of injury issues. But you just got to be very, very careful with that Achilles, and that puts you in a distinctly disadvantaged position with the Achilles. And there were a lot of injuries. Yeah. It, to me, it seemed almost like it, in a way, it's like a souped up strength shoe. Because if you were like the old strength shoes, it's a huge block on the foot. I mean, you, it kind of limits how fast you can really run or how much you'd probably want to do outside of like lower amplitude plyometrics or just, I don't know, shooting around for basketball. But it's like once you took a track spike and kind of have a little bit more in the, like something that you can hit, to, you can be sprinting, full speed sprinting, full speed, like long jump, like efforts at that. To me, I was like, this is like taking that strength shoe concept and you're leveling it up basically you're really you're really getting it up there in terms of the the maximal forces that could go through the ball of the foot yeah you know the other thing that they did is many of the spike plates were positioned poorly the spikes particularly were positioned poorly with respect to the sesamoid so Mm -hmm. a lot of more in front of the sesamoid would put you at a mechanical disadvantage you know your spike that spike's got to be underneath the sesamoid and then you can use that big toe appropriately Mm -hmm. but if you get it in front, you get the wrong lever system. If you get it behind, you got the wrong lever system. So when you when people choose spikes, they, excuse me, they really need to be looking at where that inside spike is here on the sesamoid. If it's there, uh, no, no good. If it's there, hmm. no, no good. So, and, and that was a big problem for years, years and years of just trying to get them to. You could, you, they could have even done an average of people's big toe lengths and probably done a better job of spike positioning. Yeah, it. I guess it makes sense to me. Like ball the, uh, like the ball the big toe, or like I, I, I never uh, uh, next pair of track spikes. I don't want to make this completely about track, just in respect of all the strength and conditioning community listening. But it does make me think about, and I've heard David Weck talk about like the timing of the, like just feeling the the sesamoid or the timing of when the force gets to that sesamoid area or. Um, mm-hmm. in, I've, I've started the process of cutting up shoes occasionally. I learned from Adarian Barr has been on the show a lot and like the idea of cutting out the area that's between the ball, the big toe, and then maybe the pad, just a little teeny bit, but like it just, oh, it, to me, it just respects that, that, that sesamoid is that lever is like, we talk about the big toe, but it's that ball, the big toe sesamoid area being just really important to be able to use as a lever. And I can see how if you put a spike in front of it or behind it, that would really be bad. So this interesting to me. Yeah. And, 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 and people don't, I mean, many people don't even make it to the big toe. You know, they're coming off their second MD and they're, and they're running. Mm-hmm. They don't even make it to the big toe. So yeah, it, it is for sprint coaches, particularly in the, up through the 400 and then the distance because for a long time, the distance spikes had a really short spike plate. Those I, I don't even know how they ran, and I'm surprised that they didn't have many more injuries. And they may have because the spike plate was horribly positioned, better now than it has been. But that was the spike plate, so the, the spike went with the spike plate. And and I think that everybody now starts to understand that big toe and sesamoid is 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 key. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, so I, I do want to get back to, um, there's a few questions I want to circle back to. I kind of got these yeah. like, hooks that are lying in some of the earlier things you said. So we'll see how many I get back to, but maybe I'll start with the earliest one. So you were talking about the, the fascial system, muscles setting up elastic. And I know we mm-hmm. talked about this last time. I don't know how far we necessarily got. And you've already alluded to it, like just that impulse, that what three hundredths of a second or something you have 
where that there that collision is happening with the ground and and as well as like the idea of basketball and losing elasticity what would you say your philosophy is on on then training the fascial system like things that need to be in the program maybe we talked about this last time too with some of the chinese athletes who had only done kind of one thing their whole life like they didn't play team sports or whatnot i'm not sure how far we actually got into that but i'd be curious your take on just how do i make sure an athlete's elastic and fascial systems are a priority in this program well one their fascial system i'm not going to say speed is set but their fascial system is their their anatomy to train it would be just it'd be two components. One is that muscle that sets it up. So let's say we take the, the calf, the foot, or ankle stiffness. We know that you're going to have certain muscles in the lower leg that are going to have to be isometrically contracted to set up the fascial component. And that's true whether it's acceleration or it's going in, in, in max velocity. Obviously, in, in acceleration, there's going to be a little foot push uh in in max velocity there's relatively less than than that so to train it you know we go back to low amplitude one of the things that low amplitude training for kids in that eight nine ten eleven twelve year old they just do it naturally outside if you just go watch them they're they're jumping and playing and and they're training their elastic system all the way through where we lose it is somewhere between middle school and high school when the growth spurt takes place mm. because that can absolutely destroy your elastic system for a little bit and nine, 10 months, maybe a little bit more. And if you don't prepare a child emotionally or mentally for what that change is, then it, it can destroy them. It can destroy the drive. They, can, they certainly won't compete as well. There's other things happening. And and they're gonna they're gonna walk want to walk away because no one explained to them that this is normal and this all comes back over time. You get you get your elasticity back. I didn't realize this myself until I wore earth shoes because I was a pretty good jumper. But I started wearing earth shoes in 1977 for a year, and my vertical jump was like gone because you know the earth shoes had the old negative heel. I just kept stretching slowly over a period of time, stretching out my Achilles. And I lost the elasticity in my calf. And, and you know, I had almost a meter vertical jump. So that was down, <laughs> went down like, I don't know, 0.7 or something like that after that. Wow. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big deal. So jump rope, you know, little mini hurdle, all kinds of jumping exercises, but not high, not high amplitude, low amplitude. And let the tissues deform just enough to start adapting to those smaller stresses over time so that the, uh, they, they build the, the strength of the specific elastic tissues. Will, they, they will adapt to these small amplitude jumps. Then you can get ready for larger amplitude jumps further in your career. That's been a, a huge thing on my brain, especially really the last, I would say somewhere one to three years. Sometimes I, I lose where exactly this like thought really took a foothold. Maybe it's just been more and more every year, but the low amplitude being that cornerstone. When I was in my mid twenties, I was coaching track and still competing. And it's almost like the further I got away from, again, I'll go back to high school basketball and only because basketball is in is low amplitude in nature in my opinion because you have so many just little quick jabs and cuts and like mm -hmm. these little quick minute steps you're taking 
to react to your opponent are not they're not long and drawn out they're they're all low low amplitude not all but most are these low contact times and it's on occasion you might really bend load and load up and jump high but that's that's not the the common movement it's all more quick stuff and then i looked at my training and my 20s and i'm like wow it's all now it's all like high amplitude it's all lifting and depth jumps and big hurdle hops like high hurdle hops and and i don't think it really hit me the way it I at least did and i will say that the redeeming element i think there was actually for me in my opinion was some tempo sprinting because although it was tempo it was still lower amplitude <laughs> a, a mm-hmm. level of lower amplitude and it took me a few years to figure that one out but just as I've gone on, I just think more and more about the changes that happen when you go from low, really quick hurdle hops to those hurdle heights going up and you see more knee bend and you see more, ha- the shin angle has to create a great yeah, change it, to get over those. I don't know if there's one exercise you can pick, but high hurdle hops, maybe close to it, is a great way to destroy anybody's elasticity and their ability to create good ground contact times. That's a measurement thing. You have to measure it. You know, what heights does somebody achieve their best ground contact times at? So you can then maybe go a little above it, a little below it in terms of the hurdle height. And, uh, you know, it, it, it usually takes people a while where they're doing these big, even if it's just the highest male hurdle height for high hurdles, you know, that's, it's just too far. The amount of force. Now, if you want to use it as a, as a strength training workout, you know, where you're, you're trying to create forces. That's one thing, but do not think that it's increasing your ground contact time or your ability to do things quicker because it's it's not. It, it doesn't do that. Yeah, I, shorter. I, yeah, shorter does. I wish I would have had you to tell me that about fifteen years ago. <laughs> you weren't you weren't the first person who said that. Even if you talk to Rolf, you might take that make note of this because he noticed that we we had this conversation about four years ago, and he was a decathlete's javelin thrower and pole vaulter. And, and he said, you know, I was doing all these high hurdle hops and it took me a long time to figure out that they were killing my, my speed and my ability to react to the ground. I said, yeah, it's going to teach you how to be kind of slow. You, you start absorbing. And the last thing you want to do is absorb, which is why I don't use the word jump very much anymore with, with, with jump training. I use bounce training. Oh, I like that. I don't know when this podcast will go out in relation to a podcast I just did with uh, Logan Christopher, who's like a, he's a lot of things. A strong man uh, is one. And then he also is really into uh, NLP or neuro-linguistic programming. So linguistics. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about just the importance of what you even say in a workout. What do you call things? Or even, it's funny because I'm saying workout. We were talking about how when you even say workout, it depicts exhaustion. (laughs) So he just calls it training. And so it's just funny. I'm, I'm like, okay, I need to like create a list and all these habits that I've put myself in. I, I love balance oh, training over. Yeah. And NLP is, you know, something that we discovered. I was lucky because I lived in Eugene, Berkeley, uh, Boulder, you know, and, and a couple other places that were really pretty far out there in terms of pushing the envelope of the human being. And uh, so a lot of this stuff I was exposed to pretty young, you know, NLP. In, in Berkeley in the 70s. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is the stuff that you just go, okay, uh, I see why. And now try now try using NLP in a foreign language. That just goes out the window. Cueing goes out the window. Because you, you you can't figure out how to cue because their words don't work, particularly in an object-oriented language, foreign language. That's why that's why bounce came up 
bounce came up back when I was coaching the Korea because they just didn't understand jumping. They kept trying to jump. Hmm. I said, no, I don't want you to jump. I want you to bounce off the ground. So we had to find the Korean word for bounce. Nice. Yeah. Or you have to bring like a golf ball out or something and like yeah, uh, yeah. a basketball. I, I was just, I want you to bounce, you know, so you're doing all these crazy things. And of course, like an idiot, you're always just raising your voice to try to get the message across, um, which doesn't work with anybody. And no matter whether you're speaking the same language or not. Yeah, I, I had a good conversation. Kibway Johnson's episode was out not too long ago talking about being coached by Dr. Bondarchuk and how actually, in many ways, the language barrier just made him figure out, you know, embody stuff and spend time feeling more on his own, you know, and yeah, and, and how yeah. that was an interesting component of it as well. Yeah, I mean, I want that, you know, and, and I and I I also advocate for peer teachers, you know, so there's the and I've said this for years and there's that that Latin term similar to this Latin term, docendo discator or docendo discatus, uh, something close to that, which basically says one learns by teaching. So if I want them to to really learn this, I make them go teach another athlete. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I was working with a, uh, I volunteered at a high school program this past year and in pole vault, that was um, the the setup there was something to the, the tune of one guy has to like coach the other it was like you know low on staff too like right i, I, I mean there's obviously a, has to be a coach watching them ball but it, the the head coach had got the athletes in the habit of like coaching each other watching each other's step like it was like an assembly line around the pole vault pit just so that they could experience it from different perspectives and mm-hmm. i just thought that was really cool it it made me um, oh. really interesting the pole vault's one of those one of those events where peer coaching can be really really good because they're all kind of discovering the same thing at the same time, you know, go, Oh, I got it. You got to feel it here or look for that. And, and again, you got this six foot two guy with long arms trying to tell a five foot five guy to, you know, do something and it just doesn't work, but just the same, the six foot two guys learning it for him, even though he may not be able to get the five foot five guy to, to achieve the, the same thing. So it's, it's really important. I think at, at, at every level, as long as you have a competent, at least one competent athlete who can can communicate what you're trying to get across. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's interesting to think of like the yeah, that almost you almost would learn too. It's like well, maybe or maybe potentially like the six two guy would be like, oh well, that didn't work for this person who's way shorter than me, and this is what's uniquely mm-hmm. a strength yes. of mine. And I think that's... yes, they, they, they'll they'll learn that. Yeah, definitely. So. Yeah, moving up. I want to move back. Yeah, to actually, I mentioned you had one a, other thing. Yeah, there's a couple other things. Yeah, I had two yeah hooks that are still in my brain here from before. Uh, so I'll go back to the furthest one, lest I lose it. I wanted to get into, uh, so Sue's uh, foot strength. You mentioned that that was really poor. And maybe along the lines of elasticity, we could work, I'd be curious. And you also, it seemed that the, because I'm, I'm actually trying to arrange some things in my head. It seemed like the the first part of his race respectively, was the part that improved the most. And obviously, the top end speed's the hardest to improve anyways. But I'm curious how foot strength played into all that. Just because from my perception, um, well, I've always thought that um, that reactive foot strength correlated a little bit more after 30 meters or so. But then at the same time, I also realized that if your feet or ankles are mushing in those first few steps, that that's obviously a huge problem. And so I'm, I'm curious how you, one, um, trained that foot strength. So uh, with that, that you saw the lack on the Kaiser, I know you mentioned like the quick plyometrics, uh, and then how you saw that show up in, 
his improvements, uh, be it an acceleration or uh, t- transitioning or top end speed? Yeah, so we would do several things for that foot strength. One, of course, is the seated calf because I start with solely as because it's the most usually the most under underdeveloped or undeveloped muscle in the lower extremity, and then we would go into jump squats, calf bouncing jump squats, sometimes on an incline, sometimes flat. More often than not, with the Kaiser rack, because it's it's faster than. So it's kind of hard to understand, but if you have mass, all mass reacts at the same speed. You can't accelerate mass at anything more than 9.8 meters per second per second. That it, it, everything is the same in every weight room in the country. But when you go to a Kaiser and then you add in 60 kilos or 70 kilos of air, now you're going to be accelerated down faster than 9.8 meters per second. And it start, your body starts to adapt to that. When Ralph came out the first time this year, you know, he's, he's measuring ground contact times. And he's like, I've never seen ground contact times like this. Not in anybody, hmm. not even Coleman. He goes, what the hell are you guys doing? Hmm. And I told him, I said, well, there's two things. One, we're getting really, really elastic and powerful. Two, and it's this track. And because we, we had in Shenzhen, we had the same track as Tokyo. And I took, I keep a, a one, a one inch steel bearing with me. And, uh, I took it to the track and I dropped it down and it popped up to about 71 centimeters from one meter. It's almost a 70% energy return. Then I took them over to the other old track and it was like 41, 38. It was, it was not double, but close. And I said, this is why. And so if we're going to do anything in Tokyo, we got to figure out how to use this because this will kill you if you don't know how to use it. It will, it'll destroy your, your sprinting uh, if you're not patient. You know, and I learned that from um, Harry Jerome. Harry was brilliant. And, and he wasn't running on synthetic tracks all that much back in the 60s and, and you know, six, 1960, 64. But Harry said to me, he said, Randy, the key to the 100 meters the max velocity component is you have to wait for the track to give something back. And at that point, that's when you, that's when you feel and go because you hit this harmonic with the track and then the, it, it, it summates the forces. So now you're actually coming off the track faster with more power. And that's when you let your stride length go. And, you know, to his credit, Carl was brilliant at it just brilliant. He was the most patient sprinter and he waited and waited. And when he felt that you could see, you could just watch his races. You can see when he feels it and he goes and, and, and it's not going to occur until somewhere between 65 and, and 80 meters. It's, it's really late hmm. when it starts to occur. So when you, it, and it can occur until you hit max velocity. So you have to hit max velocity first, and then you go through this and you just be patient and wait and wait. And then the summation of forces will start to take place. It's different on every track. And that Tokyo track was crazy. Do you think that you could, I, I love that, by the way, I was, the the whole timing thing, I've gotten more into, especially like the last five years, like like Alexander technique and just like getting more into the feeling and sensing and reacting world. I, I learned a lot of that from swim as well. And there was a recent podcast I did with Adarian Barr. We were talking about like even in bounding, like you can, wait for that and feel that point when the ground goes back to you and i think it's bounding's made a little slower like it's easier 
with sprinting, I mean, it's fast. Like I, I find it harder to f- feel that. Like you said, like you have to like almost wait for it. And then it, I'd imagine that it's probably something you can only do to an extent on those high energy return tracks. Would you say like versus like grass? Like I, it's, could you even feel that on grass? Basically you can only do it in racing. Yeah. You, it, it, you can only, you could, it's the one part of practice that you can only do in racing mm. because you can't really get there in uh, on, a, on a track because you're just never going to be the same. You're never going to give that hundred percent in practice. It's not going to happen. You know, you may you may give a hundred percent time, but it's not your hundred percent effort. Still, uh, a flying thirty, but a flying thirty is still short. It's not yeah. a, you know it's it's not out there. So the that concept, and it doesn't have to be a, a high energy return track. It just has to be using whatever energy that track gives you back. You know, it, it, each track is going to give you something, and that's basically the purpose of going out there the day before mm-hmm. is to try to feel what the track is going to give you. And if you can feel it and utilize it, it, it changes the last 20 minutes of your race. Yeah, that that part of the, one of the things that you said back four years ago that I've kept with me, and I, I think about this quote often, is you had talked about the idea that a mass-only model doesn't work. And I think about, like, there's the data and then there's the actual harmonics. Like you said, there's the feeling. And if it's just like punch the track, pure just pure numbers <laughs> there's you miss that i don't i don't think you can really achieve the harmonic if that makes sense it it at least i would yeah if you're that. if you're only looking at force in you're missing force out all everybody talks about it but i don't know that enough people practice it enough people practice trying to feel it and it doesn't happen overnight by the way and when you say you can't can't feel it on the track most people can't not initially that it takes it's taken Sue uh, almost two years to feel it, you know, and, 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 the, and he probably in all honesty would have felt it earlier because we've been talking about it and trying to get him to feel it in training, but he has not had enough races, you know, coming to Tokyo this year, he ran one, I think three hundreds may have run four. The numbers, but the numbers low, put it that way. He, he's not raced enough to ever feel the event. And this next year, one of the goals is to get him to race enough to actually start to feel his pattern, his race pattern. You can't just come out. If you do that, you're always going to be great at acceleration, but you're never going to be good enough to feel your max velocity. Hmm. You got to race enough to feel max velocity. Yeah, I I would agree. And then that emotionally charged state too, that's hard to get in practice. And like that, Mm -hmm. it's almost like that you're chasing the, I don't know, like, like, chasing the unicorn or it's like this thing that you only get every now and then and you have to yeah it's it's really i i mean that's um something that I, sadly i feel like i'm too far away in this I, I haven't done masters track meets but if i was back doing that again or maybe i will soon like that's something i'm really excited to yeah. think about like you're just chasing this level of human movement and embodiment that is only available in a certain time frame and yeah i guess with track two versus other sports it's a little bit different but they're really cool to think about yeah, I mean, going back to let's say doing a, you know ankle bounces uh, or 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 you know exchanges or just straight bounces or even little jump squats with the Kaiser squat with air, you know when you just use a regular bar that's twenty kilos, and you've got your body weight that's seventy, it's ninety, you know you just do a little bit of the math on the heights, and then the velocity that it's coming back down at, you know you're you're going to see how much more force there is. 
And then you have to get better and better at being quicker at that. So there's no, I don't think there's any, any one single better exercise than a, a, a ankle bounce or jump squat on the Kaiser rack for increasing the ankle stiffness outside of, of course, the setup. With the setup comes from the soleus, but the gastroc is the is the active elastic component there. So with Sue, like he was that week with that when you first uh, started working. Uh, oh so yeah, you you would say that a lot of that improved strength came. And I was going to allude to this, but like not just from like what's like. Oh, you're weak on the the Kaiser test. So let's just do the Kaiser. I'm sure the the jumps is probably what gave him that strength more than anything than just do being on the, the, the single or the, what do you say? The, well, uh, the, 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 Kaiser, the Kaiser seated calf is pretty hard to do, to duplicate anywhere. You know, it is a, it is one of the most unique and under underestimated pieces of equipment mm. ever, ever made. You know, Dennis made that for Willie Banks and, and Mike Powell and I oh, really? back oh. in 1987. That's when he first created it. And uh, you know, it, it, the first time you get on it, you're like, oh, okay, yep, this is different. I got you. And, and so you have to have that kind of strength. I think there's, I think someplace, I've got a graphic, I don't know what the heck it is, displaying the soleus's forces compared to the gastroc and just in running, not even in sprinting, you know, and it's like 3X and the soleus is like 8X. Wow. I mean, it's substantially more, which means that you better get that thing strong. You know, Sue can, Sue can do 200 kilos on there now and hit over 2000 Watts, uh, at, at, at close to 200 kilos. That's pretty explosive. Yeah. And pretty strong. So the strength base is set up is, you know, Bill, Bill Sands has always said strength first in the power equation and velocity second. That's really cool. Cause I was thinking, I, you know, I briefly mentioned the hip flexors, Lance Walker touched on it, but I've done a few episodes recently. One was with Dave O'Sullivan talking about uh, physio talking about how important the soleus was. And he was going into it on a little bit more of a, more of a functional rudimentary level with some exercises that I've used to really good success. I've really enjoyed them, but mm-hmm. in looking at what you're talking about, it's almost like, okay, now you can go to the next like high performance level there by, I mean, it's basic, right? It's simple. It's not super complicated. Seated calf raise, but with the Kaiser, you're probably hitting really explosive isometric, like on the you're, you're increasing the the eccentric component. It's also in a bent knee position, and that made me think about just how much Sue's like his forty or his sixty got better too. I'd imagine those early acceleration bent knee positions that was probably pretty helpful. Would you, would you say? Yeah, I mean the soleus contribution at, at bent knee is huge. Your first step is you know, 90 degree angle, it's soleus. There's no gas track in that, mm. you know, in terms of your force, receiving the force on the ground. So, and, and, and once you got strong enough in the hips, now he's creating more force into the ground. And now I have to be able to get him to not absorb that force. And, and initially he did, but then as time went on, he's getting stronger and stronger and stronger. He still has one foot. He absorbs a little bit in, and that is part of, getting that foot adjusted, making sure everything's functioning well in that foot. And I think uh, calcaneus, maybe a little posterior, drop talus, but, you know, I don't don't normally have anybody who can adjust those in China for me. Um, I got hopefully, hopefully we will this year. Gotcha. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's really, it's just, it's interesting things that come back on my radar. And when they come back on my radar, it's like, I look at everything I've learned. I'm like, yes, this is really important because I, 
I don't know, it's like I've probably had phases where I would have thought that a seated calf raise machine, you know, just any seated calf raise, right? It's just, oh, it's just mus- a muscle. It's just, you know, it's it's disconnected. It's bodybuilding. But then you look at those positions that that athletes actually get in and like what you were saying, those absolute force requirements and the force transmission and then things that other people have told me about that. And I'm like, wow, yeah, I get that. I, I, um, I would. You- I mean, oh, it's the last place. It's the last place force gets exerted, you know, as you're going to the ground and if it's not strong enough, you're absorbing. So for people who don't have a Kaiser machine, I, I had a couple of thoughts in my head. I'm always trying to, I, I love technology and being able to use like the, the best that we have available. But I always think about too, well, what if I'm just, I got my home gym and I'm just trying to figure it out, right? Well, one, I know that, well, this is a machine too, but like the Marinovich training system, they had like the super cats and I've seen pictures of Gary and Marv like pushing down mm-hmm. on the super cat as the person's jumping, like throwing them into the eccentric manually. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. I've seen, so I'm sure, well, if you had that, you could do that. But I, what I was trying to get at is, do you ever do plyometrics where, I've seen this done where like a coach or a partner is standing on a box above a individual and is like throwing them back at the ground. They're doing a little bounces, right? And the person has their hands on their shoulders and they're th- kind of throwing them down at the ground with each with each jump or things like that. I mean, I guess you have a Kaiser. You, you don't have to do that, but you don't have to do that. No. And 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 that's it and and that's the same concept as utilizing air. Only difference is you've got more control and you get to see exactly how much power you're producing immediately. You know, so it's just a little safer, that's all. And, and, and it, I mean, it's not, that's all. It is a lot safer yeah. and it is more metric. And, 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 and it surprises me, to be honest. I'm still shocked when I walk into college weight rooms and I don't see a Kaiser rack or two mm-hmm. just there, just like guys, just your, 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 your basketball, your DBs, your running backs, you know, your, your, your linemen, the calf, the, 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 the calf in alignment has just got to be so strong. You know, and the first guy to, to make contact is probably the guy that's going to win that battle. And the quicker and more powerful they are, then the, the better off they're going to be. Yeah. Um, you know, and they do a lot of work with a, with a uh, bent leg anyways. And, you know, if they can then make that calf even stronger, it'd be, it'd be even better. So uh, rubber bands work pretty well, just like a human being. You can just take two rubber bands, you know, big, big tubing or or something more aggressive and use it to increase the velocity back down to the ground so but i do like having the ability to increase a little bit of the mass so if i weigh 70 kilos and i have 20 i'm at 90 kilos now but i'm at 90 kilos accelerating faster than gravity that's a huge amount of force but yet i'm getting faster at that so my power is going up from the velocity side and the force side so if I keep the force the same and I and the and the power changes, I know I'm increasing my velocity. Yeah, it's it's a game you play with everybody, and it's nice to only have two two variables in that equation. Thank God, mm-hmm. uh, it could get even more complex. Yeah, I'm trying to think of how you'd even set beyond just like a basic plyometric balance. How you'd even set? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could use the bands and things like that, but it does get. I feel like the bands in my experience using a Kaiser versus a band, the bands can be more intense. Like it's, it is a little rougher well, in a bar. Well, it's, diff- it's different. I mean, in the bands you've got, uh, in, in the Kaiser, if you're using a rack, um, you've got the same force throughout. It's, it's not variable resistance. Um, whereas with some of the Kaiser machines, they are variable resistance. 
So whatever you set, let's say a Kaiser rack at, if it's at a hundred, at 60 kilos, it's at 60 kilos, no matter what speed you move it at. Um, it won't change. Um, whereas if you take a rubber band and as you increase the, the distance you move it, it it's, um, it's not exponential, but it's, it's a, a big, big change in resistance and in just two or three, once you get it, particularly if you get it at a certain stretch point, now the resistance changes. That is, that is a tremendous amount. You can change a hundred pounds in an inch. Last, last question I have for you. And I, I had a bunch more questions, but I'll, I'll just leave it with this one. I, I, I'm sure the other questions well, would each have. We can, we can, we can, we can cut circle back. I don't have a problem. I, it's, I don't get to, I don't get to speak English very often. It's kind of fun. <laughs> Well, perfect. Well, I got plenty. Yeah, I got plenty more questions. So let's definitely sure. we'll give you another opportunity no, sometime here down the road. Uh, yeah. yeah. We, go uh, ahead. Sorry. Oh, yeah. No worries. No, I have to say so much more to talk about. But I, um, I'll just leave with a, I guess, a Kaiser or a machine jump question. But but something that's applicable, I think, for pretty much or a lot of situations is a, a difference to my understanding, although maybe I haven't seen all the Kaiser machines is the Supercats had like the angled like thing you jump off of so it's more like uh or you, you the marinoviches would create an angle so it was like a four-foot oriented landing and the heels would um not touch Stay the ground off. and oh by the way i i there's a hook that goes back that i just forgot about with all the interesting information but the earth shoes which i hadn't heard about before you mentioned it but that almost answered to me something that i had thought about a lot of the idea of there's a lot of people out there who are very into not a lot, but there's a few systems out there where the Achilles get really stretched out in, you know, like whatever their training systems. And I've always just had a bad gut feeling about doing that. And I know Darren Barr has been on this podcast a lot as well. It says like your range is your range with your knee going over your, your foot. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, I think you need to be able to pronate and the bones of the foot need to be able to move. But I had always wondered, like, because I, I never wanted to do it or with my athletes or the athletes I worked with, but like of, of what happens if you really stretch out the Achilles and really get into that. So I guess that that kind of although the wearing those shoes around all the time is probably going to be a lot more extreme than just doing some stretching exercises here and there for well, sure. It's, as well. it's it's subtle yet extreme. It's, you don't notice it. Yeah. You know, it's like a, a just just you're just walking around like this for, you know, months, and months, and eventually that tissue deforms. A couple of things we didn't really chat about quickly. You know, I, I use the safety squat bar extensively, uh, the Kabuki strength transformer bars, the gold standard in my, my opinion these days. We do a lot of hex bar squats, uh, whether it's with Kaiser or without. And one of the integration tools that we don't talk about or have not talked about is the shuttle MVP, which I've used since the mid 80s. Oh, yeah. And I love it, you know, and, and for kids, it's a great way to start teaching them how to feel that reaction. Just how do you feel that elasticity in the quad calf complex so they can learn how to create more force in that horizontal sled before you take them vertically? Yeah, the uh, I know Chris Corfist has is really about that shuttle MVP. I've I've been able to use it a few times, so it's it's cool to hear that. Uh, it's it's yeah. also something that could be faster too, right? It's 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 like sub gravity, and you can. Yeah. Well, it is. I mean, you're going out and that's bringing you back in faster. And that's, that's the game. That's if you want to improve things, you know, you're overloading the eccentric and you've got to, you don't want to go too far. It's like going, mm -hmm. it's like having high hurdle hops. You put too many bands on and you're going too far. Then you've lost the, you've really lost the training 
the, the KPI, if you wish, that you're trying to train at that point. Yeah, it, it, I've, I've been watching Sir Chris's stuff and over the years, and it's nice to see he's doing things that we've been doing all along. We just don't haven't talked about very much. I mean, most of the things that he's doing are things that we started doing in the early 80s and up through as a technology change. We adapted to doing it with new technology and made it better. So he's done a great job educating and bringing some good uh, good stuff to the table for for a, another generation of coaches. Yeah, with um, going back to the the earth shoes quickly. I also, yeah, it makes sense that if you're walking, it almost teaches you to be on your heel too. I mean, as well as I mean, I guess you could say what you want about the Achilles getting overstretched, but like it's also like teaches you to not transition to the ball of your foot very well either. I can yeah, really see yeah, that you too. walk differently in them for sure. <laughs> That's so weird. I, yeah. I just, uh, but like the opposite of that. So, um, what do you think then about like the the like ball of the foot base? Like, if you were to do a super kaiser and it was like you're doing jumps off of a slanted board versus the flat ground, do you think there's a really a big difference between the two, or do you think it's um, what's your take on like a ball of the foot oriented squat jump or not? I don't think it makes much difference. I think this the angled board is inherently more dangerous. And the people I work with, I don't have a lot of them. And with the professional athletes, I have, I can't afford to get them hurt. Mm-hmm. So I tend to tend to stay away from those things that might hurt them. Now, if they've done a considerable amount of hill running, you probably can get away with it. They're probably okay because that means they've adapted to uh, that lower that lower kinetic chain is adapted to um, uh, uh, any of the forces you're going to apply. And, and, and you won't hurt something. I mean, I've seen people, I have, uh, I have a Chinese athlete that I coached in China. She's one of the, f- I think the first Chinese athlete to get a division one scholarship. Hmm. And she goes, she's a freshman year, was with us, never had an injury, goes a freshman year, takes a step backwards, a step backwards to start her long jump approach and pops her Achilles. <laughs> Where does that come from? I mean, how does that occur? It's so benign, and yet you totally tear it at Achilles, just stepping backwards, never had any problems. But she had told me her foot was bothering her two weeks before, and I told her then, go get your foot adjusted. They didn't have anybody adjusting feet. I mean, if you, you, you must get your foot adjusted if you're a jumper, sprinter, thrower, I mean, distance runner. It's just, it, it's like having a race car. You know, you, you, they change the motor, but when it comes right down to the track, that driver's feeling what's happening in the tires and the suspension, and you've got to keep your tires and suspension right. Yeah, of all the things, I, I, I've i really definitely leveled up my, my training knowledge of the foot, and I, I feel the difference in my own training, but the one thing that I definitely am missing is having someone to work on my feet. I Because I, after I, when I do get work done on them, I just, I feel the difference, and I, I know what my feet felt like when I was 18, 21. Yeah. And yeah, I know yeah. what they feel like now at 38. And there's just something that, yeah, a good set of hands working on your feet can really do. I, I definitely agree with that. Well, you're in, a, you're in Atlanta, right? Uh, Cincinnati. Oh, you're in Cincinnati, right. I'm sorry. Well, in Cincinnati, like, I have to think about it for a second. Who's in Cincinnati? But I think there's at least two people there that are very good extremity adjusters. Yeah, I know. And, we'll, uh, we'll have to connect on that. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try to find them and uh, connect. You know, the, 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 the good thing is you can always look through Kevin Heron. Dr. Kevin Heron and see who Kevin's taught uh, over the years because he teaches extremity adjusting and uh, that uh, that'll get you at least in the right door. 
Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I'll have to check that out. Uh, Randy, I've, I've had such a good time talking, man. I it's been yeah, we've gotten through. I always know the the good conversations. I mean, they're all awesome on this show, but the ones where I think that there's just so much depth in the material when we only get through maybe like four questions in the list. So I think that yeah. this was definitely hey, one of those. Feel free to circle back. I'm I'm home until January, so you know we can we can come back and. Once I get my office finished, I'll be a lot more settled. So I feel a little more relaxed with, with doing stuff. Yeah, sounds good. Well, thank you for being on the show. It was hey, nice talking to you, you again after three, yeah. four years, whatever it was. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity to speak English. That finishes off another show. Thank you so much for being here with us today. If you enjoyed this episode and this podcast series, you can help us out by leaving us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. We totally appreciate that. And we'll see you guys back next week with another great guest.